Darkcast Network. Welcome to the dark side of podcasting. Welcome to Murder and Mimosas, a true crime podcast brought to you by a mother and daughter duo, bringing you murder stories with a mimosas in hand. Just a quick disclaimer before we get started. Our show is Murder and Mimosas, the true crime podcast. This means that we do discuss crimes, including but not limited to disappearances, murder, and sexual assault. All our episodes are told with the respect of the victims and the victims' families in mind. We strive to ensure that we provide factual information, but some information is more verifiable than others. With that, grab your mimosas and let's dive in. Welcome back. I'm Shannon. And I'm Danica. Today, we're going to tell you about the story of Mercedes McCambridge and Mark and John Markle. So grab your mimosas, you sip while we share. It's a dark, stormy fall night in November of 1987. Attorney Richard Lawrence's wife is awakened by a call in the early morning hours. John Markle, Richard's client, was on the line and said he needed Richard at his house immediately. Richard said he'll go later, but his wife tells him it seemed really urgent, so maybe you should just go now. He takes her advice and he goes, but he calls the police to meet him there just in case. He arrives at 1820 South Main Street in Little Rock, a large three-story Victorian home built in the 1800s, sitting upon a hill. It's 4 a.m. in the morning, still dark, still storming. There's a police officer there when he arrives. The two walk up the many steps to the stately porch, and once they reach the top of the porch, they notice the front door is ajar. The officer told Richard to get behind him before they enter. Upon entering, they see a briefcase right inside the door with Richard's name on it. Officer continues through the house, and he finds 45-year-old John Markle, in a pool of blood with guns in both hands in the first floor study. He had been shot in what appeared to be both sides of his head. What's more odd is what they laid close to him, a blood-splattered rubber Halloween mask. He continues to secure the home and finds John's two daughters, 13-year-old Amy and 9-year-old Suzanne, on the first floor in a bed together shot to death. Officer Moore would later recount the gruesome scene of seeing the pink walls in a girl's room painted pink with blood splattered everywhere. He ascends up to the third floor and he finds 45-year-old Christine, John's wife, laying across the bed where she had been shot in the head and chest. So this is sounding a lot like a murder-suicide. Is that what's going on here? Yes. Is there any reason why or was there a suicide note? We'll get into that most likely, what most likely caused it. And yes, there is a suicide note, which is a 12-page letter to his mother, award-winning actress Mercedes Cambridge. 12 pages? What on earth did it say? Well, it's a chronological list of all the things he blamed his mother for in his life. And we'll hear some of it throughout the podcast. Okay. Accountability. Not a check. <laughs> yes. So, Mercedes began her career as a radio actress in the 1930s. It's a little ironic if you think about it. Many people couldn't afford TVs back then, and then they sat around 
the radio at night rather than a TV. We all have TVs in our pockets. So many people love a podcast. It's kind of like a talk show on the radio. <laughs> that is crazy. Full circle. Yes. So Mercedes ends up married to William Poffin in 1939. He was a writer and wrote scripts for radio, one being Knots Out, which Mercedes starred in. She appeared in her first play on Broadway in 1941. They go on to have a son, John, born December 25th, 1941. My blood father told me that things were fine in the beginning. But within a year, your work and his work became sources of trouble. He said you went to Mexico to try to patch things up. On your return, on your way to Mexico, you spent a weekend at the Ambassador Hotel in L.A. He said you both decided that a child would perhaps pull you all back together. I was conceded the ambassador that weekend. My very existence from the inception carried with it the responsibility of saving a marriage. Of course, a child cannot fix a marriage. It actually puts a lot of strain on a marriage, in my opinion. The couple ended up getting a divorce in 1946. It doesn't appear that William is really in John's life after the divorce. He ends up moving to Europe in 1950. Being a single mother, of course, is hard. But Mercedes is on the prowl for another man and has her sights set on actor, producer, director, Fletcher Markle. The three of us went to see some Gilbert and Sullivan play. That night you told me to tell Fletcher I wanted him to beat my father. You had never mentioned to me that you were considering marrying Fletcher Markle. I was simply told that night that I wanted him as a father. I did. I didn't go to the wedding, but I did go to the divorce. I completely understand his frustration. He was completely used by his mother and nowhere to be found for the wedding. From John's letter, it sounds like living maids and relatives mostly took care of him. Both you and Fletcher worked, and I and Ella Butler watched wrestling, etc. on TV. I say it was either my aunt and uncle or your mother or father. I spent eight summers there, and I worked every day but Sunday. Ella is the live-in maid, and it's understandable that you're upset because your parents don't have time for you. Yeah, that's really hard on a kid. It's also really hard on the live-in maid to have the name Ella. <laughs> that's true. So Fletcher ends up adopting John, and we and he now goes by the name John Markle. But that marriage goes downhill over the years. It's said that Mercedes struggled with alcoholism and was often hospitalized after bouts of drinking. At the divorce, I was put on the stand and asked about yours and his marriage. I said they fight a lot. My mother drinks too much. So the couple ultimately divorced in 1962. To the outside world, it probably looks like John isn't letting any of this bother him. He graduated second in his class. He's attending classes at UCLA. However, he does get into a car wreck in 1966, which puts him in the hospital for four months, but continued his master program while in the hospital. All right, I will say that's impressive, but how did you do that in 1966? Obviously, online classes were not a thing yet. I'm assuming people were bringing him his work and turning it in for him, but I'm honestly not positive how that worked. He moves in with his mother when he's released from the hospital, but doesn't stay long. Just two weeks after he is released, she apparently, in a drunken raid, kicked him out. He claims about two or three days later, they speak over the phone and agree to meet or agree 
to meet up and see if they can patch things up. But she doesn't show up. He calls and he can't get a hold of her. He heads to her house, but he doesn't have a key. I get a ladder and I try to reach a window. My head's wrapped in bandage and gauze. I break in the window and get inside. There's no lights on. Turn on the light and see you naked. On the floor. Pills and balls all over the floor in your suicide note. I call Dr. Buckley and he tells me to call an ambulance. Oh my gosh. How old would he have been then? So let me think. So he would be around 25 then. He does end up getting married and he gets his PhD in economics. He and his wife moved to New York in 1972 and he gets a job at Salomon Brothers. In 1973, Mercedes gets a voiceover gig that to this day is still iconic. Okay, you know I'm nosy, so my curiosity's up. What voiceover gig did she get? She does the voice for the little girl in The Exorcist. What? Really? That's actually kind of cool. So here's a clip of that. It's pretty crazy to hear that voice, isn't it? It is. It's like super bone chilling, especially like I know you guys can't see the scene. If you've ever seen The Exorcist, it's where the little girl's like head spinning all the way around makes it even creepier. So here is also a clip of what it took to get her ready to do the voice. I should swallow raw eggs. I should smoke cigarettes constantly. And you've got to give me some booze, which is going to make me nuts. And I'm getting off the wagon to do this. So I want my priest around to counsel. You utilize everything. Don't analyze, utilize. And, and I utilize the, 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 the thickness, all of that stuff, for, for the, the voice of Lucifer. So not only did she do all that, but she also asked to be tied to a chair with her feet tied behind her. She said she wanted to feel the pain that Reagan would be in. She really went to great lengths to get into character. That's probably what got her an Academy Award due to the length she was willing to go to. Yes, I definitely agree. I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but the cast and crew from The Exorcist have what is called the Exorcist Curse. All of those involved in the movie have seemed to have something tragic in their life happen to them. Such as the little girl that played Reagan broke her back in the filming of the movie. Although that was in 1973 and this actually happened in 1987. So I'm not sure if this is what you would call the curse, but just throwing that out there. Then in 1978, John gets a job at Stevens, a private investment firm, and they moved to Little Rock, Arkansas. John was successful in business and rose quickly in the company. After only eight months, he was named vice president at Stevens. John's mother gave him 600000 to invest, so he probably feels like he really has to show his mother how great he is at his job. To the outside world looking in, I'm sure this family seems like the idyllic family, and they may have been for a while. John and Christine had two daughters that seemed to love and adore him and In all honesty, I think he wanted to give his family the life he never had. The loving family with involved parents. I get that. I think as parents, most of us want to give our kids the best. And we all just have different ideas on what that is. 
So Christine was also very involved in the community and the girls were involved with dance and school activities, just the typical suburban life. Mercedes gets a place in Little Rock and even stars in a production of Night Mother at the Arkansas Repertory Theater in 1986. While you would think her moving closer to John would make him feel cared for, it doesn't seem to. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. December 25th, 1979. Christmas in North Little Rock. Suzanne was 22 months old. She was fussy and wouldn't eat at our Christmas dinner. She became upset and suggested that Suzanne's behavior was not suitable and asked how we could allow this. Chris took Suze away from the table before anyone had finished. Within three hours, Suze had a temperature of 104. She was throwing up the food you had insisted three hours before she eat. On December 29, 1979, Dr. Reed Thompson treated Suze for an ear infection, which he said was a secondary infection from the Christmas stomach virus. He goes on about various incidents such as this and with his family and how she was not a good grandmother to the kids and was self-centered when she could have been with the family. Okay, is this all pettiness? I mean, some of it seems a little petty. I get it. He didn't have the best mother, but sometimes you make the wrong call. Maybe she legit thought it was just a whiny kid that wouldn't eat and had parents that let her do what she wanted. I guess that would be a judgment call for each person to make. At times, I thought, you're really holding on to a lot here, dude. At times, I thought, this is really something to hold on to for years. Either way, he definitely needed some therapy. So back to his job. Like I said, his mother gives him this money to invest. And in a few short years, her investment grew from 600000 to over $1. million. Okay, I need in on whatever she's investing in. Um, I'm pretty sure you don't, because in October of 1987, Stevens happens to find out about $1.4 million is missing. John had forged his mother's signature and had made a new account for her, and all this money went to an account for her. If a trade was profitable, it went to his mother's account. If the trade lost money, it went to the Stevens house account. All right, let me see if I get this straight. He's embezzling money, but it's not even for his account. He's giving it to his mom. That seems to sum it up. Yeah, he really wanted to please his mom. There are some major mama issues happening here. So from October to November, John is put on medical leave. While they investigate and while they try to come up with an arrangement to recoup the money, John's attorney, Richard, that we talked about earlier, was trying to work out a settlement. Of course, Stevens doesn't want this getting out either because that's bad press for them. So one proposal was that John convince his mother to leave the $1 million in the investment account and just draw the interest off of it for the rest of her life. And upon her death, the money would be granted to Stevens. 
John was out of options. He didn't have this kind of money to repay this. He was losing his job. He could lose his investment license. This still means she doesn't have to pay anything to get him out of this mess. But at the same time, she can't touch the 600000 of her own money either. She declines and says he got himself into, his, into this. He can get himself out of it. Actually, this is some of what she said. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after this ad. Are you into the spooky and macabre? Is your inner witch dying to learn more about what makes the world magical? Do you occasionally crave nerdy horror content from film and RPGs? Well, have we got a podcast just for you. Join the squad at Mission Spooky where Kiki, JC, and Cord research some of the scariest historical places from Pennsylvania. Listen to our ghost stories and legends. Learn as we delve into the world of history, magic, and folklore. And be entertained with our D&D 5e RPG segment, Cordverse Cryptid. Find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and follow us on Spotify, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And remember, stay spooky. And don't die. But if you do, contact us. Beautiful. We did it in one, baby. I think that's fucking golden. Yeah, we're so professional. I never once used a derogatory term towards you. You called me a liar, a cheat, a criminal, and a bum. You said I've ruined your life, that my image as a father isn't worth a dime. You said I belong at the bottom of the toilet. And over 24 phone calls between us, you never once mentioned Chris, Amy, or Suits. When I cried on the phone, you called me a sniveling wimp that was weakening his, his position. You threatened suicide once on October 19th and once on October 22nd. Every phone call between October 22nd and October 27th ended with you hanging up on me. I honestly don't know what to say after that. I mean, I do completely and totally agree, right? He put himself in this situation and really for no reason. His mother had money. She didn't need him to embezzle for her. Never asked him to embezzle for her. And I even get like, being mad at him or disappointed or whatever you want to call it as actions but that's verbal abuse i've never once in my call like entire life been called a sniveling whim <laughs> but i'm definitely going to accuse that at some point in the future but right. that's definitely verbal abuse right i agree so what are what are your thoughts on him helping or her helping him i don't know i'm a little bit torn like you have to let your kids deal with their own actions but at the same time, his wife and kids are losing everything, too. Like, it doesn't just fall on him. Not that they can't start over. People do all the time. But also, I kind of understand where he's coming from. Like, she, you know, is it? Well, I mean, I know she's losing money in a way. But it's not like she's losing everything. Like, she's still able to earn the interest. And eventually, she she's, has earned that. She's actually not losing anything, though. She uses the interest. and Yeah, eventually, she's going to get more than her money back. So, well, anyway, he was fired on Friday, November 13th, 1987. That's creepy. After there had not been a a resolution met at all. Oddly enough, on Friday the 13th, they watched Nightmare on Elm Street with the girls and invited friends over for scary movies because of the iconic Friday the 13th. November 9th, John calls his insurance company to inquire on his life insurance. He asked, was there a suicide clause? 
that should raise some red flags, but there are so many weird things happening here. Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, The Exorcist. <laughs> like every scary movie is just thrown in here. Wild. Yes. Yeah. So I wonder if you have to report something like that about calling the insurance companies. I don't know. I guess we need to find out. We do. So there wasn't one, there wasn't one, and upon his death, his mother would receive $500,000. On November 15th, John goes to Quapaw Gallery and purchases a mask. This was after Halloween, so I'm surprised there was even one to buy. I also don't know what the Quapaw Gallery is, but I do know that it's no longer there. They believe he wore this mask when he shot his wife and kids due to all the blood spatter on it. Okay, this is interesting. Do you know what scary movie this one was from? <laughs> I wonder if he didn't want like the last memory of his wife and daughters to be like the man who claims to love them and protect them is like this monster and he's the one that's killing them. Or if like there was some shame involved, so he felt the need to cover his face. Hmm. It could be a combination of the two. And to answer your question about that movie, it was not from a movie. It was an old man mask with like balding on top and a little bit of hair at the side but it's supposed to look like old man but not from any movie i know but it was creepy i guess so the briefcase he left for his attorney has a new will inside and it had that he wrote he had it and he wrote it and he notarized it on november 9th so he has made his attorney the executor of the will Okay, so it's evident from when he had it notarized, this wasn't something like he decided to do that night. Right. He had this emotion before that. That's a sad case. Like, I really feel for him that he felt like this was his only option and only way out. Well, do you think that he did this because he didn't want to leave his family broke or he did this because he wanted to hurt his mom or did he want to make sure his mom didn't lose anything? I don't know. So he had the 500000 life insurance policy, but that would have gone to Stevens, I guess. Um, I think he had, like, this love-hate relationship with his mother. Like, he despised her, but he so badly wanted to please her and win her approval. This doesn't have any importance to this, but I found it a funny zinger. Before the letter to his mother, he had a note to her that says, read this first. He outlines all his inheritance she will be getting uh, upon his death. And at the end, he says, not mother, which was the play she was in at the rep. This is all we have for this story. So you can go through the rabbit holes and read the entirety of the 12-page suicide letter, his will, and other documents. In the meantime, let us know what your thoughts. And of course, send us cases that you would like us to do. You would like to give a... Quick shout out to our voice actor for today, Jonathan Williamson. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after this ad. In a world where true crime meets the supernatural and the unexplained. Where true crime and chills 
go hand in hand. Welcome to Total Conundrum, the podcast that explores the dark, the eerie, and the downright mysterious. Join us as we embark on a spine-tingling journey through the mysteries that keep you up at night. We're diving deep into true crime stories, uncovering the most baffling cases, and exploring the twisted minds behind them. But we don't stop there. We're also exploring the paranormal, from haunted houses to cryptids and all the creepy things that go bump in the night. Get ready for some supernatural thrills. And what sets us apart? Prepare for a dose of dark humor as we navigate through the creepy and bizarre. <laughs> We've got it all. Bone-chilling tales, banter, and mind-boggling conundrums. You won't know whether to scream or laugh. So grab your favorite snack, turn down the lights, and join us for a roller coaster ride of true crime and the supernatural sprinkled with a bit of comic banter. Stay curious, stay captivated, and let's dive into the world of Total Conundrum. Now available on your favorite podcast platform. Get ready to be captivated, creeped out, and cracked up with Total Conundrum. Thanks for hanging out with us here at Total Conundrum. Please make sure to check out our website and blog at TotalConundrum.com for news, upcoming events, merch, bloopers, and additional hysteria. You never know what will pop up, so be sure to follow along. If you want to show your support for Total Conundrum and gain access to all of our bonus content, please visit our Patreon page. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The links are available in our show notes. If you have any questions, comments, recommendations, or stories to share, please email us at contact at totalconundrum.com. Episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate the love. Keep on creeping on, mother cluckers. We always recommend more bubbly and less OJ. Cheers! If you'd like to see pictures from today's episode, you can find us at murder.mimosas on Instagram. You can also find us at murder.mimosas on TikTok, Twitter. And if you have a case you would like us to do, you can send that to murder.mimosas at gmail.com. And lastly, we are on Facebook at Murder and Mimosas Podcast, where you can interact with us there. We love any type of feedback you can give us. So please rate and review us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.